Hi, I'm Paul, and this is Archonnect Sessions, episode number five. Uh, today, Amelia and I will be talking with LA architect Barbara Bester. You may have seen her in the news recently as the architect to restore the recently purchased Silver Lake Lautner House, Silvertop. Uh, the house was purchased by a Beats by Dre executive, and uh, you may have already known that Barbara also designed the well-published Beats offices in downtown LA. Uh, that project was finished earlier this year. Uh, after that conversation, Ken and Donna is going to be joining us to talk about the new Michael Graves School of Architecture. Uh, we'll also discuss Julia Ingalls' latest installment in her Material Witness series, Interstitial Blues, and we'll touch on some other topics in the news. So before we get started, how is everyone? Amelia, how was your week? Great. Really good. Yeah. Um, I had a bunch of birthday parties to go to this weekend, so I made a trip to this wonderful downtown LA institution called The Last Bookstore, which is like just a fantastic institution that I hope never goes away in Los Angeles. It's a, yeah, a bookstore, <laughs> hopefully not actually the last one. Um, and they just have a fantastic selection of new and used books with really creative and very well curated um, collections that the staff there is really, really on top of. So yeah, that's a, that's a great endorsement. Actually, that I can tell you exactly where that, that bookstore is. It's on Spring and 5th because the Arconnect uh, headquarters used to be in that same building. Hey, cool. But, but yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really great bookstore and hopefully it's not going to be the last. But um, yeah, nice endorsement. Yeah, totally. If anyone ever needs a book or just to talk to people about books, you know, you can go there and be like, I have no idea what I need or want. And they are super helpful to get you some gifts that you need. How was your weekend, Paul? It was good. It was... Uh, you know, trick-or-treating with the kids. We moved into a new neighborhood earlier this year that goes completely insane for, for Halloween. There was some pretty uh, out-of-control haunted yards that were really kind of mind-blowing in their intensity. So the kids didn't really get to experience that, but some of the dads did. And uh, I have to say that I've, I've always thought that those uh, photos of people in haunted houses looking freaked out, those those hilarious, you know, photo galleries that pop up on on every blog around this time of year. Um, I've always thought that they were just ridiculous. But, you know, I think that I may have proven that theory wrong because I I almost messed my pants. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can definitely attest to that house, too. I that that neighborhood is in my old neighborhood where I near where I grew up. And so I used to trick or treat in that more or less in that same area. And I, there's no way I would have allowed like anyone under 12 to like go in that space. But as a consenting adult, I, I checked it out and I was just amazed by like, they had 20 people employed in this person's front yard to help run this scary labyrinth haunted thing. And just some of this, like the cost of that alone just was mind bending, but it was totally worth it. Yeah. I watched this uh, this family start building their their haunted yard, and it started in September. So that's how much effort goes in. It was, and then there were also some other houses in the neighborhood that took a kind of a more tasteful but really really creepy take on on uh, on their yards. There were some a lot of a lot of child actors that were that were uh, <laughs> not 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 known child actors, but kids that lived in the house soon that to were, be discovered. Exactly. Yeah. yeah Definitely soon to be discovered by, I don't know, um, some crazy uh, horror filmmaker. But uh, yeah, there was, there was some scary stuff. I saw a lot of kind of blank expressions among my kids and their friends. I'm hoping that we're not going to have to talk about it <laughs> as, as they grow older. But um, They'll tell it, it to fun. their therapists. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
It was great. How about you guys? Donna, how was your week? Mine was good. I also did a, a trick-or-treating on Friday night and the weather was just miserable. It was freezing rain and awful, but we went to also to a block where there was, um, uh, where people go quite overboard for the Midwest, let's say, as compared to LA, I'm sure it was not that big a deal, but, um, but it was quite festive. And, uh, the twist on my Halloween this year, the trick-or-treating twist was that, um, my son was now using my cell phone to call his friends and their cell phones to find out where they were so that we could join them trick-or-treating. So we've, we've sort of gone away from the, you know, my, my little boy going out trick-or-treating with me to where he now just wants to call up his buddies and go with them. So it's a little bittersweet, but it was, it was a good, good day. I got some time with him at least. Wow. Well, by the time my kids are, are that age, they'll probably just be trick-or-treating via Oculus Rift <laughs> in their living rooms. Which will be much safer. So it will be know, safer. I, I, Good point. Good yeah, point. and few and fewer calories too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Virtual candy is not not that bad. Yeah, food. they're not going to go for the virtual candy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then last Wednesday, I went up to Ball State and spent the day uh, with Anders Berenson from Vision Division, and he gave a talk that was hilarious and so fun and so accessible for young architects and for people doing sort of small projects. Um, so they recorded it at Ball State, and that recording, that video recording is supposed to be up on their website soon. So as soon as it is, I'll make sure to, to get it up on the show notes because um, Anders is just so funny and so engaging and talked about just crazy, wonderful work, really very small scale, but really wonderful work. Oh, great. We'll definitely make sure to get that up on our connect, either in the show notes or um, as a news post that I think our our readers would love to watch that. The, the work's just so clever and, and smart. And uh, we also did reviews for a couple projects, my, my uh, studio projects. My friend Wes Jans gave his third year students a um, project that was to design a public toilet. And they had to compare public toilets in various parts of the world and then design a toilet either for their own hometown, which many students at Ball State come from smaller towns in Indiana. So that was a, a way to sort of get them investigating their hometown through a different set of eyes, um, or to do one in Dharavi, India, in the in the slums there, the informal settlements. So it was a really great uh, critique to talk about very simple tectonics, but also about these somewhat embarrassing um, topics that we, as architects, we have to discuss. And I'm sure uh, Ken, I'm sure at some, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm sure at some point you went through this, that at some point in your life, your professional life, you're discussing where to put the tampon machine in the public ladies restroom. And it's probably not something you've ever discussed before in your life. I certainly remember discussing urinal screens for the first time. Um, but these are, we have to understand the full gamut of human, uh, functions and emotions when we design architecture. So this was a really good little project that, um, I reviewed for my friend Wes. Cool. You know, that reminds me of, uh, we're, we're going to be featuring a, a piece by Julia Ingalls on uh, Jimenez Lai, who I'm sure you guys are familiar with, Bureau Spectacular. And in it, he, he addresses, you know, the value of the bathroom, you know, as a space is, is almost like a form of like meditation or um, escape. You know, it seems like it seems like I mean, there's so much truth to that. You know, that experience is, is very personal and often very relaxing. And but it, it seems like there's not really enough attention devoted to that in most projects. With Anders being there from Sweden, um, he actually gave the students a very impromptu talk with a few drawings he did on someone's sketchbook of the history of outhouses in Sweden. In northern Sweden, apparently outhouses with your summer home are still quite common, and many of them are built as communal outhouses. So there's a singular bench 
um, with several holes in it and people sit and chat and catch up as they do their business. So um, that's starting to die out a little more in Northern Sweden, but it certainly was, he remembers as a child going with his grandfather and sitting and doing his business and talking to the neighbors. That reminds me of the uh, this old SNL skit from probably the, the 80s or 90s. It was an advertisement for a toilet for lovers that, <laughs> that the two... <laughs> Where they the the lovers could sit next to each other in opposite directions and you know uh-huh. and be affectionate while <laughs> while going to the bathroom. I'll make sure to put that video in the show notes as well. Please do, please. One, if I remember correctly, I think when uh, when Russia had the Olympics, there were uh, images of the of the uh, large bathrooms where they had uh, toilets without your without any partitions at all, so that we were sitting in this one space with all of these water closets. Kind of, and, and as Americans, we just kind of go, "Oh my God, what what is that situation? How do how do you deal with that?" Yeah, I actually think cultural differences between restroom facilities is a fascinating topic. And having been in the Moscow main airport in 1990 and going to the bathroom in a hole in the floor, uh, one of many holes in the floor, it's just very uh, interesting to me how many different ways we are willing to agree on doing what can be a very, very private function or something that's just considered, hey, it's part of life. It's what you do. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being a kid in uh, in China um, just on a vacation and we took a train and I, I was feeling really sick. So I went to the bathroom and it was literally a hole in the bottom of the train. Yep. Just yep. watching the train tracks. Whoa. Um, <laughs> yep. Same in, same in Russia. I had the same experience when I was a kid in Germany. <laughs> wow. In Germany. Yeah. And you never, here's the funny thing, is that you never went to the bathroom, stopped at a train station. Of course not. That was like one of the things that was verboten. Of course. Huh. <laughs> you got to wait for that, for that hole. Yeah. For the movement. <laughs> yes. Wow. So. Toilets. Yeah. Well, and it, it, it's making me think, and I can't remember now the name of the the, the feature, but there was a feature with the little uh, emoji of the poop um, that was yes. about ah, how yeah. things never go away. Oh, yeah. I love shitting, that whole notion. Yeah, yeah. shitting architecture. Shitting architecture. That was by, uh, by Nicholas. That, that's right, which was a great read. And just, I've been thinking about it ever since, this notion that things never go away. There is no away. We need to stop thinking in those terms. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. however, can I just add one more cultural of course. connection here? If you ever watch TV you notice that no one ever goes to the bathroom. <laughs> Not on HBO. <laughs> on HBO, they use every opportunity to show someone taking a shit. <laughs> or at least sitting on the toilet. I don't know what's, what's exactly happening. And they're not, maybe on Cinemax, they'll, they'll show exactly what's <laughs> right. happening. But uh, yeah, yeah that's, that's true though. Yeah, I remember the epiphany when I was watching Friends. I'm like, why don't they go to the bathroom? Yeah. They don't ever go to the well, bathroom. Well, Ken, you're presuming that the cast of Friends are actually human, which is like oh, a little true. bit of a premise. So <laughs> <laughs> it's a stretch. <laughs> so I'm sure we could go like and just fulfill an entire encyclopedia of the various forms of shitting architecture or lack of architecture if it's the case of any uh, a giant hole in the floor where everyone right. just faces their backs to one another. <laughs> <laughs> I love your idea uh, of of uh, putting together some kind of uh, piece about the attitudes of, of uh, bathrooms and and going to the bathroom in different cultures. Oh yeah, I think and I think the U.S. is far more prudish yeah. than pretty much everywhere else in this department. Um, I remember going on a class trip to Japan and going into public restrooms where it's the same, just a single trough in the restroom, and then everyone squats and does their thing, and. There was this entire like social construct set up around girls uh, who were around in the public spaces around the uh, 
the bathrooms who would give out tissue paper for the toilets. And that was like a, a social task that they fulfilled because the idea that you would actually have your, that you would go to a public restroom and there would already be tissue paper there, that didn't exist. So I think it would be super cool. I think this would be really interesting to to delve in a little bit more and see how it's approached from all these different angles and what role it has in the overall culture. Absolutely. In in Sweden, apparently, they they cannot understand why we Americans are willing to put up with the gap between the door and the stall, you know, that little <laughs> quarter inch gap. Like, why would you put up with that? Why would you allow someone to look in? Um, and yet up in the northern part of Sweden, they have communal outhouses. So, you know, it's it's just different expectations. It would be nice, though, to eventually figure out a solution to um, exiting a public bathroom without having to touch the handle. Absolutely. I mean, is, it, is, it, is it that hard? <laughs> we have automatic doors. Yes. I mean. But there is actually a device for that purpose alone. Well, it's not in L.A. yet. Okay. Or in any other city I've ever been in, but I would love to hear about it. What, what, what's it like? It's a tow pole. Oh, that makes sense. Oh. It's as simple as that. It's a tow pole. Flushing handles should also be pedal, pedal powered. Oftentimes they are. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I think, I think they are by, by choice, but not by design. So Ken, is your, uh, is your furnace back, back up and running? Um, I know that it was as of last week, but everything's cool on that front. Everything's or, copacetic. Or warm right on that front, I guess. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm good there. I saw your, uh, your ribs on Facebook, and I, I assume since, since you're a vegetarian, I assume they, they were from a herbivorous butcher. Correct. Correct. Yeah, we... They were incredibly real looking. I mean, it, it even looked like... You, you showed a photo, too, after you were finished, and it looked like there was still blood on the butcher paper. They did a fantastic, I mean, you know, I think a lot of times people just say that the sauce is what you taste, but the texture and everything worked out so well with their, with their ribs that it, it was a complete package. I mean, yeah, the ribs, the sauce tasted like you would find on a typical barbecue rib, but um, to kind of uh, leave it there would be, would be selling it short, but they were put, I was trying to get photos of the um, each menu item that they served and their pairings. And it was hard because every time they brought out a tray, it was consumed within like 30 seconds. People were ravenous. So they had literally almost no, literally no food in a very short amount of time. Wow. So that, yeah, that was the big thing over the weekend is they uh, kicked, they did their Kickstarter campaign. And um, in under 24 hours, they've already hit their, hit over 20% of what they've been at, what they've been asking. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So. It's, it bodes well for them that they're going to be um, they're going to get their Kickstarter funded and more. So, excellent. Yeah, I missed the plate of ribs. I only saw the bloody paper. Oh, you did. Oh, it was a yeah. it was a shish kebab of um, uh, potato and uh, rib. Nice. Yeah, it was nice. fantastic. Sounds sounds delicious <laughs> and so exciting. So things are going well for them. Things and, are uh, going well. They're going to move forward. Um, a lot of changes have happened since we last spoke. Um, I accepted an offer at another firm. <gasps> Does that mean oh. you've lost the herbivorous butcher project? No. In fact, I was trying to figure out how to talk to the client uh, about this, and it, they we we had a discussion um, uh, this past week about my leaving and the firm I'm with currently and why that happened and what they, I gave them three options for next steps um, with regard to that, uh, with regard to their project. 
and uh, they decided that there wasn't really much alternative but to stay with me. And whatever you know way that worked out, if I brought them to the new firm or if I stayed with and created a partnership um, with my current employer, um, they just did not want to lose my involvement in the project. Well, that's great. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So right now I'm yeah. currently working out the, the technical stuff with the current architect. Um, I've been emailing back and forth with Donna, um, getting her feedback about um, how this is all going to work, what the role, what the responsibilities of each party are going to be going forward and making sure that I represent to the client that, you know, I'm in control. Um, but the current architect has some vested interest in the project as well. Um, his name is, his firm's name is on the project, um, which will change uh, to add my, um, my involvement as well. Um, and we're working out the money and we're just trying to make sure that all the roles are defined so that uh, everyone walks away feeling pretty good about it. And I think we're pretty close on that re- in that regard. Um, so going to finish out these last two weeks and kind of take it on as a bit of a side project, but kind of unofficially, you know, launching some effort here at, at kind of moving forward with my own personal aspirations around the, around the profession. So awesome. Yeah. yeah way to go. Ken. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, and starting with a great client. That's amazing. Yeah. Good good yeah. job. Thanks. All right. Well, should we move on to the uh to the topics? Let's. Sure. Yeah. So Paul and I uh spoke with Barbara Bester about her recent project at the Lawner Silvertop House in Silver Lake, California. Um, and we spoke with her about generally her practice and how she operates in Los Angeles. She's very keyed into a lot of the things that kind of LA architecture is known for and particularly Silver Lake architecture. And uh, we wanted to talk to her about her her whole ethos and how she got the project and her positions on renovation. So let's uh, go to Paul and I's discussion with her now. All right. Well, we're here with Barbara Bester. Thanks for joining us on our Connect Sessions. Thank you. Um, I was uh, thinking that we could start off with going back to the beginning of Bester Architecture. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, like how how you started the practice? Well, I guess I you know I came out of Syarc Graduate School in the early '90s and. There wasn't technically a lot of work out, but I did a brief stint in a corporate office and it wasn't really my bag. And I I kind of collected a series of small home office projects where I would design and sort of build and install all the furniture in a very detailed scale. Um, But I also had, I had kind of in grad school developed this specific mission to have my own office, like a sort of a woman owned office, not a bit of a feminist agenda about it too. So that kind of helped propel me through the, you know, weird nineties era. I, I did a lot of um, pretty low budget projects for like record companies and, and streetwear clothing stores and residential projects, like kind of everything in the kitchen sink. But I had a, I was, te- I was, a, I was a teaching architect. So I sort of had a whole academic intellectual agenda that was not uh, unrelated to what I was doing in my work, but at a kind of a very small scale. So did you go to SciArc uh, from LA? Are you from LA? or No, I'm from the East Coast. I went to Harvard as an undergrad and I was um, an art major, but I, 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 was, I went there knowing I was going to go to architecture school later. And so while I was an undergrad, I took a year at the AA in London in that would be the late 80s, which was a very fertile time at the AA. So, and, and while there, I was actually kind of encouraged by my 
uh, faculty and friends there to check out Los Angeles. I was like, if you actually wanted to build building as an, as an architect, you should go to LA. Don't go anywhere else. So could you explain what everyone should experience strange beauty every day means? Oh, sure. That's um, our office motto, um, which is a conjunction, I guess, of these two concepts. One of them, the Russian formalist notion, uh, art is making strange, which is kind of a Viktor Shlovsky, I believe, was the first one who talked about it. But that that, that was this idea of... Um, Sort of it, actually in Russian formalism was applied to poetry, but that you would you could sort of defamiliarize something like say a Russian folk poem by kind of changing the context that you were reading it in, or even the format, but that you didn't necessarily have to change the essential material. So basically, defamiliarization is a concept, and then the everybody part of it, I guess, is a kind of more um, I would say both in terms of what I was into in the in the sort of LA in the late. 20th century, there, we were, a lot of us were interested in these sort of notions of everyday life that came from things like the Situationist movement, that, that really what architecture does is really influence how you experience your everyday life, and that that's where, as architects, we should see ourselves operating, and not necessarily in a kind of banal way or a social justice way, but more in a kind of, it can, it can be purely in the form of aesthetics or other things. So is that related at all to the Bohemian modern uh, book that you... I guess so. I guess I guess that, um, let's say that the ersatz condition of things is something I've always been interested in. And so Bohemian modern took as its notion something that's now, I think, quite common, you know, like Witness, the Selby, or lots of different kinds of design blogs. But the idea that how people actually live in their architectural environments in a real way, as opposed to like a kind of El Decor way is, is of interest and is actually maybe more interesting than the kind of cleaned up, sanitized, you know, hand of the designer only scene type of way. And so it was a way of both doing that kind of approach to like how to, how to represent architectural space, in this case, domestic space largely, but also, um, you know, a kind of loving sort of memoir of that particular area, Silver Lake in Los Angeles, which I'm very attached to, but also happens to be sort of the repository of some of the most important, like, modern architecture in the U.S., like 20th century architecture. There's quite a lot of it there. And I think at the time it wasn't really something that people were that aware of. You know, when I started that project was, like, 2003, maybe that book, 2002 even. I think it came out in 06 or something. But so so it's kind of a rejiggering maybe of how we understood modernism Back then, I actually felt that one of the big issues I found from with non-architects, you know, with civilians, was that their idea of like architectural space, especially in the domestic thing, was was a kind of a weird Miesian hybrid of like Mies and a and a you know Minotti showroom or something. It was this kind of very very uh, hygienic kind of idea, and and so I really wanted to show this this history that I think is actually incredibly eccentric and uh, fertile. Well, speaking of Silver Lake, uh, I, I used to live in Silver Lake, and probably every day I used to pass your your office. And one of the things that uh, probably it's it was the nicest feature on Hyperion because there would always be this changing uh, graphic facade. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, that was yeah, that was when we got that space, which I think was in '04. The only well, we kind of gutted the inside to make it more of an architectural office. It had been a beauty store and a car repair shop and a, a flower store, all these different things. But 
But um, but what we the main project that we did was building that facade. So we took off the facade of the old building, kind of like a skin graft, and built this new thing and extended it the whole lot. So it's a hundred feet long and it's fourteen feet tall. And yeah, and then it just became a way of doing um, sort of visual projects. That I think my I don't know if it was the first. I think the first one was actually one of the first projects that Blick ever did because Blick's owner was this great guy who had been my student at UCLA a long time ago. So they did an installation there. We had all these people doing vinyl graphics. But then um, one of the maybe more meaningful ones, another designer I knew did a project that was a memorial to the gay bathhouses of Silver Lake. Like back when we, even when we moved in there, there were still a lot of signs that said no cruising and stuff on the streets. Like there had been a sort of policing of stuff. And, and, uh, and um, you know, in the aughts, really, a lot of that part of Silver Lake got kind of, swept away and, you know, whatever tides of economic change. But, um, but the, it was a kind of a, it was almost like a romantic mural about that history of LA. So I really liked that one. Most people didn't really know what it was, but, but it was pretty good. Also, weirdly, almost none of these projects have ever been tagged, even though we're three blocks from middle school. And I think there's something that people actually find valuable in sort of visual, you know, projects on walls. Like it, it, you would think it'd be like the biggest tagging target in the world so I thought that was that was sort of inspiring too like as architects like oh actually if you actually make something out of your facade it, it may actually be respected and you know people don't it doesn't have to be a sort of tagging site well I mean I've always seen it it feels like a kind of a gift to the community or I mean you feel like you're like a you know a part of the community so I, I can see how there's you know that that respect among taggers to, you know, to not touch that. Well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I'll, I'll take that happily. So in your portfolio, one of your uh, project categories is historic adaptations. Um, how does uh, history play a role in your work? Well, I guess through stuff like that Bohemian Modern book, or, you know, I have a certain interest in some curating, like we did this Deborah Sussman show last year that my office essentially conceived and kind of put on and I am really interested in what we do now as part of a larger continuum or perhaps a series of radical breaks depending on how you look at it but that that historical sense even in my case I'm, I'm probably particularly interested in you know 1920s or now or something but sometimes it's more like 1965 to now depending on what kind of topics but I think on the one hand there's that general sense of architecture, this discourse with a, you know, important history behind it. And even one in like, Los, let's say Los Angeles architecture has a pretty fascinating discursive background as well. But in terms of work, there's this kind of, I think, stewardship that goes with doing those kind of projects. And before I really had much of a practice, I had pitched a book. I, I tried to get a Graham grant along with Mark Angelil to do a project on construction documents in LA architecture. This would have been the early 90s that we we, we didn't get it because Carter Brown I think called up and he's like I don't get it. like who wants to look at construction documents that's I don't get this and I, we didn't convince him otherwise but I already was collecting you know kind of copies of blueprints of um, Lautner actually and Schindler and other things that, that I would come across you know all the archives were accessible to students but also sometimes you know some friend would have a house so so I think I've I think I've restored a Gregory Ain kind of fixed some parts of a Schindler that was run down, 
couple buff and hensman projects and now we have two lotner projects that are going on so there's it's sort of as a part of the practice there's always like one or two things like that that are going on and one of the most fascinating things i think that you learn as an architect or as a, as you start to engage say with architectural historians or going for say national or state you know historic significance for a project is that there's these very particular categories of that that divide uh restoration and renovation and reconstruction and and actually reconstruction is this terrible thing that basically well not reconstruction but sort of imaginative reconstruction which i I would say that most of the non-architects who go around restoring houses you know on their own there's a lot of like well i I think Deutsche, you know would have done this and they and they'll do it and it comes part of the house and so from the what i've learned from the historians that the Huge problem, of course, is that anything that, you know, 100 years from now, it's a little vague, you know, as to which thing came where, when. It's not, and it's not documented and it's not in a way slightly different that you can tell, you know, without carbon dating the cabinet when it's from, you, you really lose track of the historical record. So, so I think for us, the fun thing is like when we're doing projects, say like Silvertop, where we're going to use an older floor plan that's a much bigger space, um, than a later one that was done with the second owners, um, or sort of going back to the original one. But we can't, we won't, can't and won't do cabinets that look as if they were original because that would actually be the worst thing you could do. What we will do instead, we don't actually know yet. We're kind of debating various strategies. It's, you know, the owners are, are interested in the historical house and it's um, basically in, in preservation, except for you know, these two spaces that were remodeled or finished in a different way in the 70s are the parts that we're going to change. So we're we're kind of looking at what does it mean to do this thing now? And I, I would say we just only started thinking about that a week ago, so we haven't really answered that question yet, but it's a very interesting question to ask. You know, you have to mark it as different, but how different do you mark it? And Yeah, so for approaching these relatively large-scale renovation projects, what does become your first priority if you aren't quite sure how to interpret the original intent and whether you even want to carry that original intent through. Maybe you have another idea with what you want to do with the renovation or what the client might want. I would say, you know, we luckily, I mean, the great thing with someone like Lautner is that the archive, you know, we, we spent two days at the, two people, two days at the Getty archive. Plus we, we inherit a lot of drawings of the house. Plus it's actually in my book from the, uh, you know, 10 years ago, like I've been up there my whole art life as an architect anyhow in LA over, over the years. Um, and we brought out different people who have like some different architects who've worked in Lautner's office. And actually one of them who's now a general contractor is our general contractor for the restoration. So there's sort of, there's a certain amount where it's, um, there's the, the, a lot of the work is preservation, you know, basically undoing bad HVAC things that were added kind of sloppily in the seventies and caused leaks, that kind of stuff. And that's, usually what a lot of restoration is. In terms of the new part, though, what's kind of great about someone like Lautner, that this is the person in that house in particular, um, is about, you know, embracing new technologies. And in a weird way, the new owner is also by trade interested in like new technologies and creative, not dissimilar, say, to Reiner, who was the original owner and who was this guy, you know, was kind of a post-war factory owner who invented metal clips and things. So, what I think will end up happening is that there'll be a new layer of technology throughout this house that's probably completely hidden and wireless and doesn't change anything of the architectural nature of the house, but does totally change its technological nature. That's pretty much our agenda. What that looks like in terms of state stuff like cabinets is almost, you know, is next down the road because that's 
more aesthetics, but, but sort of, I guess, philosophically, that's how I would say we're updating, which I, I think, and I think I have a pretty good consensus from all the Lautner experts and historians and former employees I've talked to that, that seems kind of on cue with the general interests of Lautner as an architect, but not like it's not anything about making something that's Lautner-esque. You know. You're not going to presume what his ten, intent might have been in the non-known future. No, that's that's exactly what that's that's why I was saying that's the sort of that's the um, imaginative uh, restoration reconstruction that is that is really like verboten, you know, in in the realm of historic preservation. So we won't. <laughs> so you've also spoken in previous articles that I've read about fostering a certain design culture, and that can mean any different thing. And I can't know exactly what you might have meant by it at the time, but um, I wanted to hear about how you run your office and how you try to foster whatever type of design culture you are hoping to get. Um, well, the office is super collaborative. I think we have there's seven or eight architects in it, and uh, let's see, there's a lot of questions in that one too, in a way. But I guess I guess the cultural thing is like is is for me that the practice of architecture now is sort of related to some other disciplines, like particularly usually the other design disciplines or art disciplines. And so there's a kind of bigger collaborative circle, you know, with other offices often in my neighborhood, <laughs> just because that's sort of how those things work. Geographic proximity makes more cross paths and stuff. So, so like I've been trying to get a project together with Tanya Aguinaga or, and I've done a lot of projects with Jeff McFetridge and a bunch of other graphics people. Cause there's like a whole pod of people from CalArts, you know, graphic school there live in that area. But, but, and then also there's like, we've had these different parties that are East side architect parties, you know, in our parking lot and stuff. And that, and I think that that kind of stuff is actually really important. Like that sort of social life. It really was brought home to me in working with Deborah Sussman on, on her show. And then, um, recently I did a mini panel with myself and, uh, Jerry Cavanaugh and Mimi Zeiger that, um, Fritz Haig hosted as part of his sundown schoolhouse. And we were talking, she, she was in that same set maybe as Deborah, but there, there was a amazing, it's almost like when people describe Truman Capote's famous, you know, white party or wherever that was you know, in New York, like where everybody was there, the, the Warhol moment or something. And there's, there's just, you know, there's like Ed Ruscha and, and, you know, Judy, the dinner party, Chicago, and, you know, like all these different people literally sharing studio space, Frank Gehry, you know, that the, there was this kind of common culture, I guess, of, you know, it, it wasn't so much movie people, um, but it was maybe parallel to the movie business of architects, artists, sculptors, that there was a, a common cause, I guess. And so, I, and I do think that those groups generally do have a lot of common cause, sometimes due to the, you know, horrifying increasing specialization of how we work these days. You, you get, you find that these things get kind of siphoned off. Um, but I, I kind of like trying to open that up, you know. So, so anyhow, so I guess so within the office, so I've a couple of people that work there, you know, were grad students of mine, actually like maybe three. Um, and then I have actually one of my, one of my long-term, longest term employees is someone who I met as a fellow faculty member at, at Woodbury School of Architecture, where I was the chair of the grad program for a couple of years. And there's a, like, we kind of have all found each other for different reasons. And everybody gets a fair amount of independence on their, I mean, they, they run their own projects um, from sort of from soup to nuts and the junior ones have have a kind of advisor who's more experienced but there is a like it's one big open office and you kind of keep you know eavesdropping on each other and dropping in on things and I 
guess I sort of buzz around. That's how it works. And so when you're approaching design projects for other people's workspaces, like you've designed Nasty Gal's um, office, I believe that's in downtown, downtown LA? Nasty Gal, yeah. Nasty Gal's in a historic building, but a very modern office inside of it, yeah. So doing a combination of both renovation, but also a very particular and very of the present type of working culture. How do you bring that design culture home to those types of spaces? That, well, so, so I guess the way I think about it, when you get to that kind of like the 250 people office or the Beats thing, I think it was designed for about 650 people. There's, there's a certain um, economy that you have to achieve in the desk environment, let's just say, but everything else is a little bit up for grabs. And that I think is the way, I think strategically that makes the most sense in terms of sort of efficiency, but also how people sort of live in these offices, which are almost like little cities in a way. And so, so in each of those projects, we have a variety of different kinds of places that are like coffee bars and mini cafes, but also living rooms and lobbies and libraries and things like that that are, that are distributed around. And it depends a lot on the culture of the given company because those two companies anyhow are super different culturally in terms of what they're trying to do and how they work. Um, but but they all are full of you know people who have, who are working crazy hours on deadlines who kind of basically have to live in this place anyhow. So you want to, I guess I was I used to talk about some of our like restaurant and retail work as a way of domesticating the urban environment, like providing these sort of little living rooms for the city via a coffee shop or something. And I think that there's a kind of domesticating of the work environment that we try to do, you know, with these very different kinds of places. And they're very, you know, our stuff is very specific in terms of color or material. Like there's different things that become a kind of set an atmosphere. So, so in the end, that is a little bit what it, on a, on a metal level and maybe from a contemporary architectural design idea moment, there is this idea of creating these atmospheres, which is different than just sort of physical programming or, or, you know, any kind of problem solving stuff. It's kind of what's the, this is a very calm atmosphere. This is sort of the exciting energy atmosphere. And you, there's a lot of things that go behind making that work with a group of disparate people. I think Twitter has been actually like really explicit in saying that, yeah, we asked our new headquarters to be designed exactly like you're saying, like a city um, with avenues and semi-public spaces and those interstitial spaces where people can be both accessible, but also in their private sphere. Um, so I think it's really interesting just trend in work design. Um, but I also want it, if you can talk a little bit about the regional influence of LA on that type of design or on in, in your practice in general. Well, I think in LA, because of its geographic challenges as a city, you know, as I mean, it was so disparaged for so long as being too spread out and this horrible sprawl, which is the term you notice has gone away. I mean, have you heard the word sprawl lately? Like that only as a positive term. Right, it's hilarious. <laughs> it's just I mean, it was such the crisis in the nineties or whatever. But but I think that because of that, you um, saw the city more 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 graphically, like in a signal noise kind of way as having these little pockets that were, that were, you know, destinations that you would actually want to go to. Like it was, I know people who grew up here said that in the, I don't know, the 70s, 80s, I guess, you know, like you would go to Westwood, like that was, that's where the movie theaters were. And there's always little restaurants. Like, I don't, anyone would go to Westwood now, except for to go to the hammer maybe, but you know, it's sort of this, they change these little um, sort of nodes of moments, but they have a lot to do with people gathering and, you know, usually the right chemistry of, of kind of, what do you call it? Like, uh, I think the word, 
not synchronistic, you know, things that attract each other and make a little hub. So that's like what, for instance, the Ace Hotel very specifically tried to do when they opened downtown. And I, I think successfully, they they actually took over and subsidized leases on properties around their thing to make sure that there was sort of like-minded shops and restaurants and stuff coming in there that would sort of give give a broader urban sort of point to, to people coming to the Ace, for whether it's tourists or it's, restaurant visitors. Um, and I think that, so what we have done, I think, is is sort of be very active participant in making those kinds of little destination spots. I mean, just because of the kind of projects that we did for a long time, which were restaurants and coffee shops, a lot of, we always have done workplaces. We used to do little record companies all the time and stuff like that. But, but I think that sense of kind of highlights in a larger larger uh quiet zone is 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 not dissimilar to this office thing like the desk environment is kind of a bigger you know hat by nature repetitious you know environment and then you kind of make these these other parts that create movement and also really connect people from one department to another. that's the biggest thing in business obviously is trying to get everybody talking and crossing each other's paths so your work seems to be really inspired by los angeles I would, I would. I think that is true. So, yes. could you imagine uh, moving your practice to another city? And if you did, would you transplant Los Angeles to that city through your work, or would you try to um, find inspiration from you know from a, that different culture? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I've, I've over the years worked quite a lot in New York on different kinds of projects, and I've done other projects that are more like rollout projects, you know, we'll do a prototype or two and they get rolled out over, you know, to Brazil or Japan or whatever. So I've seen stuff that operates in ways, but generally we would, we would still be altering per the conditions of a given city in terms of like, sort of even almost visual references. Um, I did a big apartment in, in uh, Nolita recently and I was in a, one of those buildings that became a loft in the eighties and still had you know the brick walls and the whole thing. It was two stories, but we, I ended up feeling like in that context, it was better to have a more say like traditional main staircase. And we, we built a whole new staircase. There'd been a really wild one. Um, originally, I think it was done by Joseph Giovannini actually, but when he was designing or something, but anyhow, but it was, but so we did, we sort of did a more traditional thing because in a way that was the new thing after that kind of eighties loft or nineties loft kind of tear it all down and have this particular, um, I guess a lot of design elements I think become sort of quotidian rather quickly if there's just this trope that's omnipresent. So, so we always are trying to like go outside of what's taken for granted. It's like what has to be there and think about it in a bigger, a bigger way. So, so that was, but it was very New York specific kind of set of ideas about, you know, how to, how to loft departments work and what's the aesthetic code in, you know, how you work on your, how you work on your, loft in that context and that demographic and everything. I guess I like all the social science sort of back data on who you're really designing for. I think it's good to have that in mind. I guess I, so we don't come along like, oh, we're best architecture, paint it yellow. You know, that would, that's not what we do. <laughs> Although we well, have been known to paint things yellow. Well, I think um, your, your use of surfaces are a distinctive element in your work. Um, and materials, uh, graphics, patterns, um, in the beats, 
office downtown, you use a lot of uh, large scale photos by Iwan Bon. Um, how how do those surface treatments um, play into your work, or what what is the intention behind that? Well, I think I think in the in the back backstory is probably um, an interest in that you know old duck versus shed department. Like we're probably more shed oriented in that. I do think that it works to do a surface as an informing spatial component and it's a lot cheaper, but it's also, it's also has a kind of effectivity that can change over time or you can change or like, even like what we're talking about with the mural on the office or something, it becomes a dialogical surface, you know, like a screen. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it almost seems like, it seems like a very LA kind of approach in this kind of, uh, temporary kind of always changing kind of, um, attitude. I think, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's, that's great that that's a LA attribute. And it is certainly the, it's certainly one of the things about the West, you know, in general that was seen as being so different from the East or Europe and, you know, less solidity, more malleability. Um, I, I would say it's probably at this moment more about this moment too, in terms of, you know, Instagram and, uh, trending things on Twitter because that, you know, you, you're the, the, amount of time anything has its efficacy is shortened and that things are expected to change or you make something when you make something that's for reals you know a three-dimensional thing ideally it's it's able to last through many eras of different kinds of ways of seeing it and in that sense it becomes more important as an architectural piece like you kind of i guess i like to preserve those architectural pieces and be able to do them to the level of finish that is going to last for a, a chunk of time. And so other parts though, it sort of cost benefit analysis way, you kind of want to do that with some parts, but some parts are actually more useful to have be very flexible. So you're kind of getting different speeds going on with, with some of the design strategies. Um, like it's, that's something that we probably learned out of doing retail. Cause when you're doing retail environments, you know, there's a need to change a fair amount of it fairly frequently, to update it does it seem nothing worse than being old, you know, and that in fashion terms. But I think if you if you sort of decontextualize it and apply it to sort of bigger issues of how the urban environment works, it actually is a kind of interesting way to think about it too. Not that it needs to be updated in some sort of horrible shopping mall way, but rather that things are changing. And Times Square, for better or for worse, is radically changing every day, practically, as not just because the images on the signs are changing, but. So does your attention to surfaces perhaps have some relationship to your earlier studies and doing art history or art, art practice? I think so. Yeah, I think, um, like, I, I guess a lot of my art historical and art architecture history sort of interests um, had to do with uh, material, like, you know, Gottfried Semper and the his idea of the primitive hut is, you know, structure hung with fabrics that were woven and what would those woven textiles be like that was sort of a that's a kind of a topic that is very interesting on many levels you know and textiles as being traditionally seen as women's work uh also the variability of like what those textiles might have been in that theory and the fact that that's like a you know 19th 20th century austrian theorist in the middle of hoffman's world you know there's like i like that sort of things where those that seems like a very modern idea and yet it's a over a hundred years old and also as a kind of way of, you know, conceptually opening up stuff. So, so, um, so I think 
that and, and stuff like I was very uh, interested in all of our alto as a as a undergrad and even as a grad student not and it was it was not a cool architect to be into I might add but I think what I I was always interested in stuff like the experimentation made visible like something like alto's uh, wall at his villa this sort of brick wall that has all these different kinds of brick patterns that are tried out as sort of a, just a ongoing um, surface experiment of materiality as just you know, built into the his life by being part of this wall on on this property, like that kind of practice, which is maybe a more of an art practice version of architecture. I think is really very sort of important fuel as a as a creative person having these ways that you can kind of experiment things. So the rest of the graphics allow us to do a lot of stuff that we probably wouldn't be able to build yet, just because of the kind of projects we have. Don't have those budgets where you could build everything, but they kind of allow us to get close and and stuff like the E one. E1 collaboration. I mean, we love doing these collaborations with people that, you know, I called them up. I was trying to figure out what to do with these big walls. And I thought about doing a mural and I was like, oh. but E1 Bon likes to take helicopter rides around cities. So I was like, hey, do you want to like, give me to LA anytime? Do you want to do this? And he was totally into it. And he loved the, he kind of liked the whole idea of the company. And it so we did two mornings. And the idea was just that he would take shots of LA from unusual points of view, you know, not the iconic view of LA, which I always think was like the opening credits of LA law or like something like that. Something that dates me completely as an old person, but you know, but, but so, so he's, there's, there's amazing shots of Long Beach Harbor, of the oil fields in Baldwin Hills, reverse shots kind of, of, you know, Hollywood, but from a very different non-Hollywood sign point of view. And, and it, it, I think it really grounds it. I, I mean, people in the office really loved it because it's kind of like a game, you know, where is that exactly? And it, they, they each have different kind of colors because they're shot like either at dawn or at night. So you have these very different atmospheres, again, that emanate from them as well. I just have one more question for you. And I want to go back a little bit to what you referred to earlier when you left SciArc, or you graduated SciArc, and you were looking for potentially to start an all-female firm. Did I hear that correctly? Uh, no, I think I, I think there was, and I think there still is, like a, a, a dearth of female-run de design firms. Like there was a couple of architecture firms that were not necessarily known as design high design firms, but there wasn't too much out there in the way. I mean, now I think there's more. You have, you know, I mean, obviously you already had Zaha, but you have Sejima or Tatiana Berlin or like people like that that are out there. So there's, um, but there's still not a hell of a lot. And it does take a certain extra annoying amount of energy to start your own firm and carry it through for that long for anybody, male or female. So, and there's a lot of reasons, you know, in women's life path that it's harder to do that kind of thing. So I, I kind of had this bee in my bonnet and I'm quite amazed, but I'm very happy that I've managed to stay in the game, you know, this long, it's been a while, but, I, but I think back then it was sort of, it was really, um, yeah, there was, this, I, we had started a group called, uh, what was it like, women in architecture, you know, at Sire, because it was, there was like no female teachers or anything at the time. It was really dire too. And, and, and we, at that point, I think that, that seed sort of um, took root and it, it's actually come up for me. And I think the reason I'm really bringing it up, because I, I wouldn't necessarily have thought about it, I've, I've was <clears throat> from that whole sort of Wikipedia kerfuffle that was going on last year with um, not a lot of women getting into Wikipedia. And I think it was back then when I, looked up Deborah Sussman and she didn't have a wiki page. I was like, this is insane. And that was sort of what started the doing the Sussman joke. Like I called her up, but I mean, I'd, I'd met her a couple of times. We did some panels together. I was like, Hey, you know, has anyone got done a show about you, whatever. And we, 
And when, when we put that thing together, the pastor was like, we got we to do this. And and, it, and her work wasn't archived. So now because of that show, I think the, the work is now archived by both LACMA and the Getty. Like the curators came to the show, they figured out the artifacts to have. And you kind of have to go do this kind of stuff in order to change those sorts of um, kind of institutional, uh, institutionalized forms of discrimination, I would say. Um it's an interesting topic to bring up. Actually, our first episode was about uh, gender inequality in architecture. And um, as a woman who has found success in architecture and has managed to to uh, to raise kids and maintain a practice, uh, what were some of the biggest challenges? Time is generally the biggest one. Like, when do you actually have? I have a I have a my friends think of somewhat preternatural lack of need of sleep and that really helps. So actually all my friends who have their own offices who are female, same thing. Like I just have to be sort of psycho energizer bunny person because that's the only way to really do it. Um at some point, because I got divorced, I had like a I suddenly had a much more equal division of labor that was pretty good. So the week on, week off thing that you end up with in those situations is you know you can work till midnight every other week and then be sort of normal mom. The other parts of that, that was actually really good. I think a lot of people figure out you know, in their relationships, how to do that balance. And yeah, I, I, I have about six friends who have their own practices now or my generation when architects and it, it, it works very much. It's just kind of, it's a lot of work and, and you can, and, and plus just the nature of the business in architecture, like being a principal of a firm isn't necessarily like what we're all cut out for a lot of, a lot of my architecture friends and students, I would say are, are more, um, introverted, you know, personalities. And that's kind of hard to run a business if you're like that. So, you know, you have you, that, that, but that doesn't really have anything to do with gender, obviously. No, I think that's a common problem <laughs> among, among many architects that could be the best designer in the world, but running a business is a different thing. Yeah. It's hard. It's annoying. So it seems like your, your practice is really, um, scaling up, uh, recently with a lot of huge projects. I mean, Beats, the Beats project, I know um, I, I watched a, a presentation that you gave earlier and you were talking about how it scaled up from being for six people and then it ended up growing until it, until it was ultimately for 650 people before getting acquired by Apple. Um, so your practice must also be having a stro- uh, be struggling with a little bit of growing pains. How, how are you managing that? Oh, we're trying to figure that out. What we did strategically with... Beats was that someone who used to work for me who um, had had done a lot of workspace projects before was, you know, was on board for the first couple of years of working on Beats and then proposed a somewhat unorthodox relationship where they proposed to start their own office that was sort of a parallel office that was a technical office doing most of the construction documents, which is, you know, a massive amount of work and a very short amount of time on, on a project like that. I think Beats from beginning to end of what was actually built was one year and it was almost $30 million project. So huge amount of work. Um, and yes, as a design oriented firm with eight architects, I was not super excited to go out and either hire an executive architect or, uh, hire up, you know, suddenly like six people and have just sort of a drafting room going. And so we did this partnership where they were, they were, uh, basically they were a consultant of ours and it actually was, it actually worked quite nicely. So I think it's kind of an interesting, it's almost like outsourcing some big chunks of the work. Um, I'm not sure, you know, what we'll do in the future. I mean, that's kind of a, 
ongoing debate, but, but in that case it worked and I, and I feel like it was very useful as a kind of tactical light on your feet, you know, as these things blew up, like we actually were doing nasty gallon beats almost simultaneously. And these were very large projects. So, so it kind of was great to have, have a sort of partnership that allowed us to do that kind of work. Most of our stuff, we, we do everything in-house and we are building a little addition to our office right now in the parking lot that's going to have like a funny tower on it for some more signage, I suppose. But that, you know, and everyone in the office is like, when do we get, when's that going to be done? When's it going to be done? So I think we're going to plan check now. So we'll expand a bit, but I, I don't, I don't think to be perfectly honest until my kids are out of high school, I don't think I'm in a big rush to turn into any kind of other office. Cause I, I think the quality control is really the thing that we do the best and that there's a certain, you really need to kind of keep the scale, I think at a certain size to do that. At least that's what I think so far, you know, can't get too crazy. You don't need to design uh, city elements within your office yet. Like you did with, uh, with Beats. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, the whole office is sort of like one of those little pods probably, but yeah. Where I've, I've just, I'm thinking about banning cookies from the kitchen this season because people, at least everybody's dropping off like cookies at our office all the time. We're like, just stop it. We're all getting fat in here. We have to stop it. <laughs> so, but, but then everyone said that would be an inhospitable work environment if we banned cookies. So. Well, you can send them to us. Okay. <laughs> Let's, we'll split them with you guys. So what kind of big projects are on the horizon that you can talk about? Well, let's see. I have I have at least one NDA that I can't talk about. I have I have an interview actually with uh, Elon Musk's people in a couple of days about some offices. Oh, that's very exciting. Stuff like that. I have um, a house, a big new house in Palisades. Um, we you know we really mix high and lows. We're big and small, so we've got some. We're doing this project for Squirrel, um, who, which is Jessica's amazing food emporium mini food emporium in silver lake we're doing a little takeaway store for her now so we just figured out that we could afford to do this crazy terrazzo thing there so we're gonna do this we're working with a lot of terrazzo and squirrel and some other retail projects i'd say i'd say we probably have actually maybe four or five houses on the books as well because a lot of our practice has been these very detailed houses um I just gave a tour on last Saturday of these two in Santa Barbara, that one of which is for sale. And it was kind of really fun because I hadn't been up there in a while. We did those projects a few years ago, and they're super detailed. I mean, you know, as you know, with cost per square foot, like budgets vary wildly. And these are like no drywall projects. You know, everything's different kind of wood materials and concrete. And that was really fun. And it kind of made me like, oh, I think I might want to do some more houses because they're so you know you get you get to really get your craft on did they maintain them well totally oh yeah really amazing clients on both of them yeah wow well sounds exciting it was pretty fun thanks so much for coming and talking with us that was pretty great getting to talk to barbara and i was really excited to hear about all the ways she's been involved in la architecture and i know we're all going to be looking forward to seeing how the lautner silvertop renovation progresses so one of the items that has been getting a lot of attention recently on the site was a few weeks ago, Keene University in New Jersey uh, announced that it would be opening an entirely new school of architecture. The university prior had uh, to prior this had no school of architecture, and the school would be calling it the Michael Graves School of Architecture, named after Michael Graves. Um, this new architecture school will operate both out of campuses in New Jersey and also in Wenzhou, China, where Graves is slated to design one of the buildings. Um, so the current acting dean of the um, 
of the of Michael Graves School of Architecture, Dave Money, um, partially was inspired to solicit Graves for the school because he served as his um, his uh, mentor at Princeton when they were both there. And the school has been getting a lot of attention, not only because it has kind of a specific style that it's trying to push, which is, according to Graves, students will develop a well-rounded understanding of the role of architecture in society with a respect for its history and clear vision of for the future. And it's also been very straightforward about saying that they want to prioritize hand drawing and um, nothing particularly about postmodern architecture, but that hand drawing will play a very large role in the curriculum. Um, so this school has been getting a bit of controversy, though, because of its role in New Jersey, that um, primarily <laughs> New Jersey Institute of Technology, which currently also has an architecture program that is vastly under-enrolled, is saying that, why, why are you guys starting the school? This is ridiculous. There's no demand for it. Um, and there's been some critical, critical back and forth going between those two schools. So Ken, who is an NGIT grad, uh, maybe you have some initial notes about this kind of internal New Jersey conflict. Wow. Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I have a lot to say about this. I mean, on the just the whole ar- the, the argument is just categorically uh, ridiculous that uh, New Jersey Institute of Technology, and I'm, I'm assuming here that the dean is is put forth. Um, if there is a under enrollment, um, that New Jersey Institute of Technology School of Architecture has no one to blame but itself. They've kind of bifurcated the program into a into so they've pretty much depopulated the program by shifting a lot of uh, resources to growing a college of architecture and design. So when I was there, it was primarily a BARC and MARC program. I think there might have been an M, uh, a smaller MS, uh, um, master, another master's uh, level program. And um, I don't even think there was a PhD program when I when I was there. And I was there from uh, 91 to 96 and then in 2002. Um, so the program has grown by leaps and bounds in other directions. So if there is a kind of lack of uh, enrollment, it, for them to kind of solely put the onus on of the, that lack of enrollment onto the idea that um, it's the economy it's not the economy, stupid. It really isn't. I mean, a very simplistic way, of course, but it's a state school. They don't deny anybody. You pretty much have to get into the School of Architecture. You need a pulse at NJIT. And I know that for sure because my portfolio sucked. I got into the program from the from the civil engineering side of the school, of the, uh, the Newark College of Engineering. And I got in because I pretty much told the um, the admissions liaison at the School of Architecture, if you don't let me in now, I'm going to go get a, ma- a bachelor in fine arts. I'm going to come back here and get a master's in architecture. And that's how I pretty much leveraged my way into it. And I did that two weeks prior to the start of the of the spring semester in 1991 or 1991. So it, you don't really have to have a lot of... Um, a lot of skill to get into that program. So the idea, the problem is, is that that might be a small element of it. But when you go and grow the program in a completely another direction, what happens to students who then um, see that that the economy is not doing so well? Well, what you do is you create a B arc. And you give those students another way of not, uh, not a BR, uh, a Bachelor of Science. So it's a four-year program. So now they put a four-year program plus a five-year program where, let's say, University of Minnesota only has a four plus two or four plus three program. I mean, it, they've done so much to try to, to, 
to jigger with the system. And the very fact that this dean won't own up to his own failings and his failures around this program is kind of, re- it's just, it, it galls me to no end that to say that the, um, there is no reason to have another school, this, the economy can't support it. This guy's a capitalist. If your system, if this school is better and it draws away talented faculty and talented students from your program, that's your fault. That's not the economy's fault. And if this program, I'm, I'm almost pretty much assured that Kane College is going to attract a lot more talent um, from other, uh, from Princeton, from Columbia. There's going to be um, a shedding here, and it has nothing to do with anything other than the dean at the dean at the school has overstayed his welcome as far as i'm concerned at the school of architecture i have never in my and we've seen dean turnover like you would not believe this past year and it happens all the time this guy has been there for 23 years i don't i can't imagine another another dean being around that long there has to be a reason for that so to put it off as um, something that's not necessary, it's it it will fail. Well, if it fails, it fails because it fails. It doesn't, you know. So it's it's. I, I don't I don't quite understand what his point is about that. I think it's a lot of it is kind of clouding. Um, it's a way of kind of uh, smoke and mirrors and kind of distracting people from the real issue at NGIT, and it's him. It's it's his again. The leadership and the buck stops with him. So I'm going to point the finger back at him and say, if there's any problems at NGIT and School of Architectures in the state of New Jersey, it has to do with uh, the, the current dean and the current administration. There, 23 years is a really long time to be there. And you're right. We've seen so much uh, dean uh, turnover recently in the past few years. It's kind of crazy that he's been there that long. I'm I'm wondering, though, if is the do you, and I don't have any stats on this. I wonder if ACSA would have this. I'm wondering if there are. I feel like the sense has been that most schools are seeing very high enrollment um, because architecture seems like it's become a very popular program right now, sort of a vanity program in a lot of ways. Um, And I'm wondering if there's a lack of enrollment at NJIT because people are really so focused on the IVs. I mean, we see that in our in the uh, in the forum on Arconnect that everyone's everyone's shooting for the IVs or, you know, shooting for the upper tier schools. Is it is our less known state schools or smaller schools just not seeing as as the same growth in enrollment as I think the IVs of the bigger schools are, I wonder. I don't know the answer to that. Well, I think that like in terms of uh, overall maturation, it seems pretty ridiculous to attack an alternate school that is just beginning on the basis of one instance of current enrollment stats. So it, regardless of like what the current enrollment is, you know, like that doesn't preclude a future of change. <laughs> and what I found so strange about this whole little beef, I suppose, is that the NGIT statement from Dean um, Urs P. Gauchat. Gauchat. Thank yeah, you, Ken. Gauchat, yes. Um, yes. So the, the, the statement from NGIT, which came from him, is frustrated that this other school is existing because it it doesn't make sense. They think it doesn't make sense to create a new school that isn't based on the same technology that they're based on. So because the grave school is built on hand drawing, they think that's ridiculous. Like that shouldn't, that is not a, no, there's no demand for that. But that's the exact same thing that the acting dean of the grave school is saying why they will actually make it in the market. It's because we're, they call themselves a market differentiator. 
So, you know, if you don't like what you see at NJIT or Princeton for whatever reason, you're like, oh, well, I'll go to the grave school because it's like got that different touch. So the whole the whole rhetoric of this whole thing is pretty short-sighted, it seems to me. Can I can I just say something to that? One of the things I did today, um, just to check, is to take a look at Indiana and looked at how many schools of architecture in the state of Indiana. And it gave me, I think, eight or nine. And that was all the program. Wait, the state of Indiana? And I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But I think there's Ball State. There's Purdue, I think. No, Purdue's engineering only. As far as I know, there's only Ball State and Notre Dame. Okay. Okay. I, I, I it, Maybe there's different... Maybe... <laughs> okay, I, mean, I could be yeah, wrong. Per- I could be wrong. But let me... Well, like Purdue has civil engineering, so they offer architecture classes. Okay, so maybe... And there's... You know, there's, but there are only two degree offering institutions. Okay, but NGIT, NGIT's prime competition is not going to be Kane. Okay, it's not. NGIT's prime competition has always been NYIT, and to a looser degree, Syracuse. But it's always been NYIT and Syracuse, and I think um, the, I think there's a couple of colleges in, in in New York City that also offer architecture. But however, I mean. If I, I I used to uh, work with a, a graduate of the Notre of the program from Notre Dame, and they seem to be more hand focused than a lot of other schools that I have been around. So there is a market to, and they were much more classical oriented in terms of their drawing and their so that and they were much. It sounds a lot like this program to me. Just and, and I don't know a lot about Notre Dame, but from my experience with uh, this former colleague. She, she talked a lot about, you know, uh, the more classical aspects of architecture and a lot of the hand drawing and a lot of emphasis on the hand. So that might that 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 could possibly have changed. But the other one, too, Cooper Union didn't come online computer wise. And I think till you know, either towards the end of Haydock's reign there or just after he died. And they were really I mean, they were almost exclusively off the computers. And I think those students are some of the best students in the country in terms of creating value and creating architecture. So the the argument, it, their entire argument is 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 fear based, <laughs> and it's it's trying to hold on to something, especially knowing right if if we are to believe that they're under enrolled, then what do they have to fear? They have to fear further going losing more enrollment. So really, it's all about perpetuating. Um, a a fear around this program, but it, it's really clearly uh, most most importantly um, an articulation of his own inadequacies and and, a, and in, inabilities to draw talent to the school. He's scared away talent, and he's treated. Uh, you know, I the product architecture lab at at Stevens Institute of Technology was started by someone I'm quite familiar with. Um, he used to be, um, he's a Harvard grad. He graduated from Pratt. He was a um, professor at NGIT. And he started that program and he was hoping to start that program at NGIT. And the the school as it exists currently the, with the School of uh, Architecture and Design was, a, was the, the design component was a direct response to the product architecture lab created at, at, at uh, in Hoboken at Stevens Institute of Technology. And that program is unrivaled in its capacity to turn out um, quality talent 
who are interested in the, in the gen, uh, generative aspects of architecture, and they go on to work for Shop, they go on to work for Gary, they go on to work for Morphosis. All of those people wind up going to like quality firms, doing you know, getting paid top dollar to do quality work. So, you know, NJIT has been consistently four steps behind the learning behind the curve consistently and the response to there is always to create something quickly because somebody else did it and um this is you know this is again uh further emboldening that 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 idea that they have a guy in there who's um underperforming not serving the school well and has really outlived outlived his usefulness as a dean at the school of architecture i i really took exception to his comment in that article that um that hand drawing is just not uh, uh, a, a good skill for, uh, it's not a relevant skill for the today's job market. And I mean, that may be true if you're looking to just train CAD monkeys, right? But I think the bigger question is, do we want to teach people how to think? And if, you know, I say this as someone who two weeks ago on this podcast said, I'd be really interested in a practice-based curriculum for an architecture school, one that's more focused on the, the practice rather than theory. But um I still think that learning to hand draw is a skill that everyone should have. I mean, I watch my 11-year-old draw ideas just freely and with great, you know, with no fear. Um, and I think that there is still this notion of a brain-to-hand connection. And there have been some articles recently. There was an article in Discover Magazine about um, uh, uh, um, music and how some people can sing really well, and that it is in fact a skill that if you grow up around it, um, you can sing much better than you can if you don't. And the same is true with drawing. If you know how to hand draw, you have a, a firing of neurons in your brain that you don't have when you're not hand drawing. I did a little bit of research, you know, thinking about Amelia, um, into some of the neuroscience of drawing and how it affects the brain. And one of the, the people, um, Amelia, who was at your conference you went to, I think, mm -hmm. Michael Arbib. Arbib, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. He did these brain studies about neurons related to grasping and how babies learn to grasp things. Um, so there's this grasping, and you can think about grasping a pencil with your fingers, um, that there's this, part of what is called, part of it is that it's called a pragmatic action that Picking up a pencil is a pragmatic action. You are Your mind is saying, there's the thing, pick it up. But then there's also a movement called pantomiming. And a pantomime action is not, is sort of, uh, they actually consider it a precursor to language. And we're getting into a little bit deep into the brain here in ways that I don't understand. But I couldn't help but make the parallel that mousing or using a mouse is more related to pantomiming. You know, that you're moving your hand, but it's not that same direct action of of pragmatic action of grasping. So I, I don't, I mean, I'm, again, I'm wading into weeds here that I don't really understand, but I just think it's very short-sighted to say that if you're trying to teach someone to be creative and to be a thinker, that hand drawing just has nothing to do with that, that there, it has no relevance anymore. That's just silly. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think I, I'll try to search around for some specific papers that Michael Arbib has published related to that because he's very involved, not just on that level, but on actual design of architectural structures and how they can adapt to um, presumptions like that or ideas that we have of how the brain understand spaces. So I think it's totally relevant, especially to the discussion when we're focusing so much on the difference between holding a pencil versus holding a stylus versus holding a mouse versus, you know, touchpad or whatever. But 
I also wanted to bring up the the dual campus, the fact that the Graves School will not just be in New Jersey, but it will also have a campus that students can go back and forth between in Wangzhou, China. Now, uh, do you guys have any thoughts about how this might affect the whole attention to hand drawing or how potentially students studying in China might approach these hand drawing techniques differently? I, I don't I don't know much about it, frankly. I mean, I do think that that the, uh, this this discussion could go on and on. I think the whole aspect, the notion of this being having a dual campus in China is a really odd one. Um, my thought was that it's kind of a, a way of of putting a friendly face, that including Michael Graves is a way of sort of putting a friendly face on the fact that we're opening a school in a in a country that has a horrendous civil human rights issues and you know the, all the issues that are going on with parts of the world that that um, that we as Americans don't agree with. Um, I think that that offering American degrees from a university in China it's a little skeptical, and so the notion of putting Michael Graves, he's famous and he's friendly and, you know, that he does friendly looking designs, um, that, that, that's kind of a way of glossing over what could be a, a more problematic issue for me, frankly. Yeah. I think it brings up questions. You know, I, it, I was definitely very curious about the Chinese association because these days, most Chinese associations with American organizations are usually because of some kind of financial benefit. Um, you know, so if that's the case in this situation, you know, what is that? You know, it would be it would be nice to get a little bit more information about why why the other campus is in uh, Wenzhou. Yeah, and that's that's probably a good criticism to to level at, at at Kane University is that you know what you know what is the quid pro quo here? I mean, what is that? You know, what is actually happening? Like like you both have said, so. Um, I think the I've been I've been focused more on the NJIT thing because as an NJIT grad I'm kind of you know get my uh, my underwear in a twist whenever whenever he speaks up but I think it's a good I think it's a good question to ask and ultimately the you know the taxpayers in New Jersey will have to fund this but I think they need to have a you know fund it in maybe that's part of where the the trick is is that maybe the funding coming from china to fund this program is the is the attraction and that's the ultimate selling point to the taxpayers is that the, their footing of the bill is going to be actually not as bad because it's going to have chinese money involved so but the one thing i thought was a good quote on uh, on the arconnect page is that and i thought this is kind of getting lost um, Michael Gray's philosophy is to draw by hand first so that the students see, feel, in quotes, and experience the new building spatially. Then only after the drawing is complete will the students transfer the design to a computer. So the idea that computers being taken out of the uh, out of the equation here is, again, false. So it's really about what Donald talked about. The brain is really, you know, having a tangible and really, really uh, – mind hand grasp of the of this of the intricacies of the of the project and then getting the technical aspects out of the way and executing that and it's pretty much if that's the case then i don't have a problem with that yeah i agree with donna your your uh, comments about about uh i mean in a way this is kind of unlearning this uh this trend in, in architecture school of relying so much on on technology and software um you know architecture schools tend to be, uh, these days, you know, creating a lot of, uh, you know, software wizards that are not necessarily utilizing their intelligence in ways that, that we could be, uh, you know, leveraging that. Definitely. And I think it also bears mentioning that 
as a uh, public uni- university, King University, they're not going to, um, or maybe maybe I'm having this switched around, actually, excuse me, Keen as a private institution, um, they have not officially gotten registration for all of this. So the school is slated to open in 2015 fall semester, but we'll definitely keep an eye on this and see how things are actually opening up because I think they still have a lot of regulations to pass through. But um, I think we'll finish out on that. So uh, moving on to the next topic, um, a series we've been having on for quite some time, actually, been working with a writer, Julia Ingalls, on her series Material Witness, which bases uh, each feature on selecting a few films and zooming in on one particular architectural concept or material concept in the built environment to kind of use as a means of discussing the either the plot of the films or some major themes. And it's been really interesting seeing how all the different films and TV shows that she's gone after to focus on, on and the different material applications for uh, these features. And she's done everything from, like, she'll focus on any movie from, doesn't have to be contemporary, so she's done things from uh, the Sopranos or Sweeney Todd or um, the most, or the most recent one, which in- included um, Jim Jarmusch's uh, Broken Flowers, starring uh, Bill Murray, and that contraposed against um, a, a particularly violent episode of The Sopranos, which I haven't seen, so maybe you guys <laughs> can fill me in on the plot points of that. Um, but her most recent issue, Interstitial Blues, um, focuses on the porch. The, the American household porch um, as a kind of in-between limbo space where both mundane and extremely dramatic things tend to happen in films. Um, so I don't know, has anyone seen, I haven't seen, unfortunately, either the Sopranos episode that she mentions or Broken Flowers, but Broken Flowers has been on my list for a while. Does anyone have any initial comments about um, either the piece or those films? Actually, Ken, you were a big Sopranos fan, right? So you should probably talk about the Sopranos. <laughs> it's been it's been a while. Um, <laughs> it's been a while. Listen, you go ahead, Don. I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> so um, I loved this piece. I love this piece so much. I thought it was beautiful. Um, uh, it's reminded me of all kinds of things. Um, the first, though, being just the title, interstitial spaces or interstitial blues. Um, and the notion of the porch and the porch roofs in the South are always painted blue or usually painted blue. And I had always loved that and had heard this before, but had forgotten it, that um, in the South, there's a particular color haint blue. Does everyone know what a haint is? No. No. Speaking of Halloween, a haint is a is an evil spirit. A haint is someone you don't want around. So haints do not like the color blue and won't cross that color. So many houses in the South have um, in the Gullah, this particularly came from the Gullah culture, um, they have windows and door frames painted blue because the haints won't come in. So the ceilings of the porches frequently ended up being blue as well. Um, and I have always intended that when I have a porch, I will paint the ceiling blue. It may be more of a turquoise, you know, mid-century mod blue rather than the haint blue, the true haint blue. But um, but the, the, the porch that Bill Murray is shown on in that movie is painted blue. You can see it just barely in the image. Um, I, you know, Jarmusch has been a big influence on me, even though I haven't seen that many of his movies, simply for the fact that he, on a Fresh Air interview years ago, said he thinks of all of the cities that he's lived in as former lovers. And I have completely framed my life of moving around this country many, many times in those terms ever since I heard that. You know, I think about my relationship with Philadelphia, my relationship with Portland, Oregon, my relationship with the Deep South, um, all my relationship with Detroit, uh, framing these these cities as lovers just works so well for me because um, 
cities are complex and cities have many, many personalities, but they all have distinct personalities. So thinking about them as that kind of complex relationship, I think works really well. And in the piece, she talks about um, uh, open space and not having a fear of open space that Jim Jarmusch and his films is allowed to let things be um, be open and empty. And that reminds me too of the the book that really influenced me strongly, Michael Benedict's book towards uh, foreign architecture of reality, where he he gives emptiness as a quality. That emptiness is a quality that you want architecture to have, um, and that you're basically allowed to live within those gaps of the emptiness that 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 our good architecture offers. And it doesn't just mean open space, because obviously I'm sitting right now in an empty room. There's space and there's room in it, but um, emptiness is also just a, a perceptual quality of um, sort of room to breathe or uh, of having enough of a sense of itself that it doesn't need to be full. I think that sort of works with how Jim Jarmusch's movies uh, work. Yeah. I don't know if anyone else has seen Night on Earth, but Donna, that that Jarmusch film really resonated with what you were saying about it's a film uh, based on the conceit of visiting a bunch of different cities where someone is in a cab being driven somewhere else. And that's the entire film. So it's a bunch of vignettes taking place in different cities where you know, Winona Ryder is a cab driver in New York taking some rich, or excuse me, in, uh, in Los Angeles, picking up some socialite to take her to some mansion for something. And then there's all these different um, navigations of the city at night, often around uh, while the um, cab driver and the person in the back are having some type of existential debate. So it's kind of based on a similar structure to Coffee and Cigarettes, which is another Jarmusch film, but in this urban exchange where they're in this kind of private public balance between the interior of the car and out in the city and trying to make it all work. It's fascinating. Yeah. Night on Earth is another one that, that I just loved. Um, and there's it to me, it talked about um, uh, be beginning to have a relationship and an understanding of an other, that the person in the back of the cab was the other, this person who's not you. And yet through observing them in the rearview mirror, there's a scene of observing a woman putting on lipstick um, it it gives you it helps you to build a connected humanity between the two of you. I, I I yeah, that's a beautiful movie for people who haven't seen it. It's interesting because the the one thing that I as <clears throat> soon as I started to read this piece, I went I I went to the book that immediately um, came to mind, and um, it's called Warp Space. Um, it's by uh, Anthony Anthony Vidler. I think he used to be the dean at Cooper Union, and in the book it talks about um, agoraphobia. And about these large spaces where you're walking across this plaza and the fear that comes in when you're walking across these. And one of the specific instances was talking about um, the, uh, the the Ringstrasses and Camilo Cite uh, talking about how to create these smaller, intimate squares to kind of take away this modern condition of because because apparently the agoraphobia really didn't come into play until the late uh, mid to late 19th century. And it was, it was associated with a very modern condition. Um, so the, what was interesting about this was that <clears throat> when he's walking from the car, the whole time he's walking from the car to the porch, there is this informality in terms of, he's kind of very informal. And as soon as he approaches the porch, there's a, starts to cross this threshold where, and I always think about this whenever I come onto a porch where I'm like very casually walking up the sidewalk and very kind of being myself. And then when I reach the porch and I'm about ready to, to press the doorbell and knock on the door, I start to present myself and get a little bit more formal because now I'm crossing this 
this space. I'm creating. I'm crossing into this space where it's no longer informal, and it's not quite formal. So I'm almost like uh, in between this beginning and the end. And it's it's very interesting in the movie how. And I caught this a couple of times while I was watching it again. I had seen it um, a few, uh, about a year ago, and I was watching it today, and it caught my eye one more time. He's driving on the road, and <clears throat> the camera's kind of um, looking through the windshield. And at the same time, out of the corner of your eye, you catch the side view mirror of what you're leaving behind. So there's this past and, pr- and this future always present in that moment. So you're leaving that thing behind and you're going towards something. So you're always consistently in this becoming of something and you don't quite know where the destination is. And then all of a sudden after that shift, there is when he's getting closer to his destination, you're looking at the rear view mirror and at the front through the front windshield. So now the present is becoming more uh, readily apparent and the future is still off. But now you're reminded of like his, his, you know, his impending um, doom or situation kind of resolving itself. So it was very, I love these kinds of things. I love the interstitial, this kind of the space where we're not quite where we're supposed to be or where we think we're going to be and where we've come from. And there's this, a lot of potency in there for me, and it resonates with me a lot. I think about this condition all the time. It, it kind of haunts me. Yeah, I love that interpretation. And I think it also points to something that Julia's pieces have really forced me to think about more, which is not just how the set design in a film and the actual physical structures of architecture can portray these themselves as characters or as a certain style or as like a mood for the film, but how the cinematography can do the same thing. The cinematography can, like you were saying, of um, having the camera situated in a specific space where it can record both present and past and having that be a reinforcement of the whole interstitial quality. I think that is so awesome and so easy to overlook and doesn't isn't going to make or break the film but once you notice it you're just like oh yeah like that is so great and you really develop an appreciate appreciation for it um and the other thing i would just add to that same thing is that in developing these different ways of 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 perceiving interstitial spaces um what i would have loved to if if julia wants to do another piece like this i think she could have also pushed it into another film where you have the interstitial in an urban place so in these places it's almost often you know like the the character is out in some podunk town that they're, they've explicitly tried to get out of. They're trying to cloister themselves. And so the porch is like the space where the visitors come to just have like access to their private universe. Whereas the porch could also be interpreted as something like the sidewalk or somewhere in an urban space that's not quite private, not quite public, but somewhere in between. And I'm sure there are tons and tons and tons of films that deal with that um, in, in either explicitly or not. But that's what I just think is like so great about this series is that it's going to keep bringing up these parlays between architecture and film and how there's always a, some type of like balance going on. Yeah, the, uh, I, I immediately thought of the stoop, the urban stoop as this place that's the, mm-hmm. the stand in for the porch. Yeah. Um, and I think in uh, the first Spike Lee film, Do, yes. which the name is escaping me. Do the right, Do the right thing. thing. Yes. Ah, perfect. It, the stoop totally plays in, right? Totally. That's, that's this place that's kind of private, but you're also out there being part of the city. Um, I, I wanted to mention um, that I think Julia's whole piece, these have all been so beautiful. And um, I have a very good friend here in Indianapolis who is, he got his master's degree in architecture at Austin, 
Um, but he is making a living as a film uh, set designer. He's a, 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 what's it called? A production designer. So he did a movie called Computer Chess. I don't know if any of you guys have seen that. Yeah, was really? this a relatively recent one about the competition? Yes, very recent. Oh, very I've recent. Been meaning to see that. Yeah, and it's like based in the 1980s. It's a chess tournament, um, and uh, he did all of the production design for that. So every decision about um, about how things look and how they're how they're they you know all of the little props and stuff. Um, he also did one called Natural Selection that was about a woman going to find the the son that she may or may not have given birth to many years before and given up for adoption. And it's, he does beautiful work and he completely brings his skills learned from architecture school to the making of how a scene appears. And I I just think there are so many parallels with how we want people to proceed through a space or we want them to turn and come upon a certain vista or uh, we want them to feel compressed and dark in certain places and then expansive and open in others. They're just that the relationship is so um, tight. And I think most architects I know love movies. And I think maybe that's, that's partly why. Yeah, the only other thing that I think would reinforce this series is attention to a, a series we developed a little bit of, about half a year ago or so. Um, Paul and I did a series of audio interviews with people who have either, filmmakers who have either produced films that are architectural, like documentary films or such, or uh, architects who have then gone into film. It's on that kind of overlap. And it was a cutting room series. So if you're interested in more of that, totally check that out. Oh, can I just also add one more, last little thing about Jim it. Jarmusch? Because I love him so much. Um, <laughs> Dead Man, as someone who grew up in the West, Dead Man, and, you know, and really grew up in the West, um, in Arizona, had a a horse in my backyard, went camping in the desert, um, killed scorpions, all that stuff. Um, His movie Dead Man made me view that whole mythology of moving West in a completely different and I think much more real way, if that can be said. Yeah. Yeah. So if you haven't seen Dead Man, see Dead Man. (laughs) Agreed. Yeah. I mean, all... All John, uh, Jim Jarmusch films. Um, Night on Earth, though, I think it's my that that's my favorite. But uh, yeah, Julia's features have really made me want to revisit a lot of these films. Um, but anyways, moving on, we're we're going to have to wrap up soon. Um, which I hate to cut you guys off short because this conversation was going in a really interesting direction. Um, let's uh, let's look at some of the stories that we're going to be that we're going to be bringing up in in uh, coming shows. One, one of the stories that I, I know that we all really wanted to talk about, but we're holding off because we've got, we've got some, uh, some good content to include in uh, next week's show is our recent piece on student debt. Um, Nicholas put together the, the first of an ongoing series of uh, brief anonymous um, interviews with students addressing debt and, you know, how they feel about it, addressing debt from a kind of a different perspective, a more emotional, real and honest perspective, and, you know, how it's affecting them, what they're thinking about. And the, uh, the response right away has been really great. People, I think, are, are really happy to see um, this, this kind of honest take on, on debt. And I think a lot of people are getting surprised at the kind of debt that, that a lot of students are facing these days. So uh, I know that, um, Amelia, you've, You've uh, spoken with some students that that are going to be joining us next week. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the people that, without naming exactly where these people are coming from, I happened to also speak with a few students at a SciArc event recently who um, had read the series and were interested in, in contributing their own uh, stories to the whole conversation around debt and the question of just, is this worth it? And if so, how can we keep doing it? Or if not, how can we change it? 
Um, so yeah, we'll hopefully have a few um, current students to comment on the debt issue sometime next week. Another topic that's been getting a lot of comments in in the news is the the new Lucas Museum by um, by Mad Architects in Chicago. Uh, it's been it's been getting kind of mixed reviews from both the public and and architects. Uh, it's basically a blob shaped mountain um, on the lakefront. <laughs> um, you know uh, the uh, the the word of the month right now. Weird architecture is getting thrown around a lot. Um, I don't know if that's picking up from all the all the talk about weird architecture in China or if this is just kind of an ongoing trend among you know public reaction to. Uh, evolving um, uh, form in in architecture, um, whether or not you know it's inevitable or or a trend, who knows? But um, but we're hoping to get uh, Ma from from Mad uh, to join us, or um, to include a, a talk that we're going to be having with him. Amelia's uh, been been talking with his people, and we we've got that lined up. So we'll we'll kind of put that off for an upcoming show. Is there anything that you guys wanted to? I just want to say that from the three photo, three images, I believe, three or four official images that have been re- released of Mad's design for the Lucas Museum. Did anyone else see like a circus tent? Is that just my crazy interpretation? Because <laughs> yes, yes. like just like with the baked potato, I immediately saw circus tent, which you know. <laughs> Might might fly. I don't. It did. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I definitely saw that too. But you know, these renderings, as most renderings that we see these days, are you know are taken from kind of an abstract perspective. You know, it's an aerial shot, or uh, the the actual building has a full, uh, you know, a, a, a straight up and down glass facade, which would create a very different, I think, uh, um, experience on the ground for you know for for users of the building. Yeah, I mean, it's impossible to say now. So that's exactly why we we kind of wanted to hold off our major conversation and hopefully we can get some more um, informative uh, perspectives on next week's podcast. I won't be, uh, I, I can be completely honest about my debt. <laughs> you won't, <laughs> Good, I, I won't, I won't <laughs> Good. be anonymous about it. I'll be very upfront about it. This, this is a really particularly difficult one for me and, and I'm glad we're addressing it. Good. Great. Yeah, it's an important it's an important issue. I think that students are really not going into eyes wide open for the most part, and I'm happy to talk openly about mine as well. Great. Well, that's going to be a Wonderful. that's going to be a good discussion. Are there any endorsements that that you guys have before we end today's show? Ken, I'll start. Donna, no, yeah, Ken, you start. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I what was interesting today for the uh, the topic of talking about graves and hand drawing, I, I, I went to the uh, Did You See It? Wait Now It's Gone piece. And I really, really liked reading that piece because that piece is connected to the discussion about hand drawing. And so I'm really interested in, in um, learning more about um, uh, Casey's work and the generative art at the um, as a uh, keynote address at the uh, Acadia. 2014. So I like that. Obviously, the debt piece is, is pretty important. Um, those are really kind of the, the things that stick out in my mind right now. Yeah, I also, the Acadia, um, Amelia, your piece, View from Above, the Acadia, that sort of was the roundup of all the pieces on Acadia. That was really good to me and helpful to to have just one place to go to find them all. So I would encourage people who are interested in Acadia to start with the View from Above piece. Um I wanted to endorse the 10 by 10, which is the 10 by 10 Drawing the City London, which is an auction benefiting Article 25, which is an architecture-based charitable organization. Um, 
and it's uh, featured on the site as uh, about 10 of the drawings, I think, are featured. But if you go to the actual 10 by 10 Drawing the City site, you can see all of them. Um, and it's drawings done in a 100 square grid, all centered on Renzo Piano's shard in London. And the drawing style, and they are all being sold, uh, auctioned online to raise money. Um, some of the drawings are just spectacular and uh, really a just great uh, uh diversity of different ways to view the city. For for those of us that are interested in the city, of course, this is going to be popular. Um, and uh, some of the drawings are only a couple hundred pounds. So, you know, Christmas is coming. Maybe you could buy your loved one a drawing that you really want for yourself. <laughs> and <laughs> that's what my husband and I tend to do a lot. So, uh, but you know, the gift of art, it's a, it's a good gift. So yeah, that's my endorsement for the week. I also wanted to point attention to um, a recent article about the opening of the World One World Trade Center for actual business so that tenants move in and start operating outside of, out of it. Um, the Right now, as of now, um, the... One World Trade Center opened a couple of days ago. And as of now, it's, I think, only like 60% um, filled, but they still have a good portion of tenants to attract. But that the major tenant is Condé Nast, the media and publishing house. Um, so New Yorker and um, Vanity Fair, Bon Appetit, all of these um, media publications are going to be moving in there. And what I thought was so interesting about this and why it's important to just like notice was is that from last that the last time that Condé Nast moved around, they were in a um, office in Times Square before Times Square is what it is now. So they were in that when it was much more seedy than naked cowboy. Um, and their presence there made a huge difference in the neighborhood, not just locally, but obviously as a tourist attraction. So the fact that they move into one one World Trade Center has been given a lot of clout because they they expect that in the changing area around that, that Condé Nast's presence is going to kind of expedite things and make the neighborhood feel much more different. Um, so there's just something that, you know, in the whole context of looking at the memorial and really delving in deep into that, uh, you know, life continues on the midst of that. And as uh, the building is continually rented out and more people go to work there, I'm going to be really interested to see what impact it has on the neighborhood. Well, I have one uh, recommendation and uh, something that I'm looking forward to is uh, I was really happy to see that Mitch McEwen has um, updated her blog, which is a, one of the best blogs in our in our blog uh, network um, called Another Architecture. Um, she updated she updated with a post about um, her new apartment. She recently moved from New York to Detroit and she moved into um, the uh, the Mies Towers in in Detroit. Um, Lafayette Park. Lafayette Park, yes. Yep. And uh, so she kind of introduced us to the quirks of that building and, uh, you know, what she uh, – her feelings on that. And she she mentioned that there's going to be uh, a few more posts coming up, uh, Mies-related posts and, um, and some local interviews with people in Detroit. So those are no doubt going to be uh, worthy of um, reading for sure. Yeah. Yeah, very, I was very excited to see that also. Can I just say how much I appreciate her work? Yeah. I love what she does. B big fan. Yeah, I think we've uh, mentioned before that we we should try to get her on the podcast, and that that's uh, something we should still do. Maybe now that she's settled in, in Detroit, we can uh, we can try to snag her. Yeah, we should try. I just finished reading the uh, Charlie the Charlie LaDuff book, Detroit, um, and it was a painful read. It's it's tough. It it frequently made me want to just throw the book across the room because Detroit is just, has been so, so beleaguered for so long. Ugh. But things are looking up there, the right? Real estate among the hottest in the, in the country. So we'll see. All right. Well, 
let's uh, let's wrap this up then. Thanks, you guys, for great commentary as usual. Uh, for everybody listening, thank you for uh, listening this long. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. Let us know if you did or if you didn't. Uh, we really appreciate um, good feedback on iTunes. And uh, we're actually, we, we just got added to Stitcher, which is another really popular podcasting platform. Um, it's a little different than the other, than iTunes or other platforms in that it, uh, it, it delivers podcasts based on, on your interests. Um, so check that out. Um, also, you can follow us on, on Twitter. Uh, if you want to mention anything about this podcast, use hashtag uh, Session 5. Follow us on Facebook, RSS. Yeah, and uh, let us know. Let us know what, what, you're, what you're thinking. Uh, we love feedback. So um, until next week, thanks, everybody. Thanks. Great talking to you, as always. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, everybody. All right. Likewise. Have a good week. Have a good week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.